Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is an award-winning journalist, best-selling author, and a special correspondent for Vanity Fair. Earlier this year, his book, The Loudest Voice in the Room, How the Brilliant, Bombastic Roger Ailes Built Fox News and Divided a Country, was turned into the television series Loudest Voice by Showtime, starring Russell Crowe as Roger Ailes. His reporting on Fox News eventually led to the termination of both Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes. Gabe Sherman, welcome back to Words Matter. Thanks for having me. So, Gabe, when The Loudest Voice was first published back in 2014, even in your wildest imagination, could you envision two years later, Bill O'Reilly fired, Roger Ailes fired, and Donald Trump a serious candidate for president and then president? Yeah, you know, it's, it's one of these things where you'll uh, never be able to see the future until it happens. When my book came out, after the initial rush of the adrenaline of the book tour and that excitement, I really went into a a pretty deep funk because I expected the book to land um, with more impact than it did. I mean, it created a whole flurry of, of headlines and news articles, but then it sort of went away and Roger Ailes continued to wield just as much authority as he had before, even though my book included the first on-the-record examples of women alleging Ailes sexually harassed them. And so it was one of these things where I was waiting for the floodgate to open. And when the book landed, it, it didn't. And so it really took Gretchen Carlson's lawsuit to really bust open um, this you know, wall of silence that Ailes had built around himself. What got you interested in becoming the foxologist in the first place? Why, why did you think this was worthy of now many years of your life? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I've um, written a lot about the uh, intersection of politics and media going back to the start of my career at the New York Observer, working for the uh, late legendary editor, Peter Kaplan, who had this old world romantic idea in the power of big media institutions. So that was sort of really shaped my early thinking about what I wanted to report on. Uh, Fast forward years later, I was writing a series of pieces for New York Magazine about the uh, influence of cable news in the run-up to the 2010 midterms. And everyone in politics and in in television I was talking to kept talking about how Ailes had revolutionized the news business. And there hadn't been a serious biography or book really written about Fox News. And uh, there was just so much more I wanted to dig into that I couldn't fit into a magazine piece. So at the end of 2010, after the Republicans had swept the midterms, it was the biggest um, shift in seats, I believe, since 1948. So that was really showed the power of Fox News to galvanize this Tea Party movement. I decided to pitch a book on, uh, on Fox. Interestingly enough, the first idea I had for the book and the proposal that I sold was more of a corporate history of Fox News, focusing on the broader picture of the network and how it was built from 96 to the present. But very early into the reporting, every single person I interviewed said that you can't write about Fox without really 
focusing on ales because the network was basically a reflection of his entire worldview. And so over the ensuing months, the reporting shifted and the book became a biography of ales. And we can talk about this later, but that is what sent him into DEFCON 5 and went to war against me. Right. Oh, we are we are definitely going to talk about that a, a bit later on. But like you, Ailes had his own vision and thoughts about the marriage between the political world and the media and the cross-pollination between the two. And we wanted to ask about something you focus on and spend a lot of time in the book. Fox News was born not just out of Ailes's dream to create a conservative cable news network, but the idea started really more than 20 years earlier during his association with Richard Nixon. And Ailes believed that had something like Fox News existed in the early 1970s, Nixon could have survived Watergate. So let's talk about that for a minute. How significant was Watergate and the origin story of Roger Ailes and Fox News and this vision of the two worlds that he had started out with? Yeah, that's an amazing question because I really think it gets to the heart of how significant Fox News is in the arc of American political history. You cannot understate how much Watergate imprinted on Republicans like Roger Ailes the need to take control of the national media narrative. And they did talk about in the mid-1970s that if they had their own counter uh, media infrastructure, that the Washington Post and CBS News and all of the big East Coast media outlets would not have been able to railroad, in their minds, Richard Nixon out of office. So, you know, one thing I focus on in the book, and it's actually one of my favorite parts of the book, was um, this little-known conservative TV network called TVN that Ailes briefly ran in the mid-1970s. It was bankrolled by the Coors family, the right-wing brewers, which uh, in Colorado, they were really the Koch brothers of their day. Um, and I got access to a private trove of, of documents of this archive of the history of this little TV network that was started by a bunch of Nixon alumni. And so this was really the genesis of Fox News in 1975, 74. It didn't work. It was ahead of its time. The technology didn't work. It was too expensive to distribute news if you weren't one of the big three back then. But that was really the blueprint for Fox. You fast forward to 1996 when Rupert Murdoch hires Roger Ailes. And it really, by that point, cable had become a mature medium. And then he was able to to pull the trigger. So I think that is today, especially in the environment of we're on the eve of, of another presidential impeachment, I think this will be the kind of the test case for if Donald Trump uh, ultimately survives this, this impeachment, this will prove the theory of the case that, yes, if you have a megaphone like Fox News, you're able to really control the the agenda in a way that um, Richard Nixon, of course, was was not unable to. Gabe, I've always wondered if Ailes was not pushed out at CNBC, whether the Fox monster would have been created. Was that just a holding pattern, do you think, that he always envisioned creating what he created? Or did some of this just happen? I think it's a mixture of both. I mean, I think clearly he was thinking about it. He had these ideas. He, um, briefly put Rush Limbaugh on television in the early 90s when he was trying to turn his radio show into a late night uh, syndicated show. It didn't work on TV. But Ailes was clearly trying to tap this underserved conservative populist audience. But that said, if he had stayed at NBC, I strongly think he probably would have continued just being a TV executive because NBC as an institution would have 
kept some guardrails on him and prevented him from doing the kinds of things that he would ultimately do at Fox. And it was only until he worked for a mogul like Rupert Murdoch, who, you know, as long as the profits rolled in, really let his his people do whatever they wanted, did Ailes have the freedom to create the Fox machine. History would have been very different if Jack Welch hadn't fired Roger Ailes, which is how he opened the, the Showtime series, because it sent Ailes off on on a mission that was really fueled by two things. One was revenge. You know, he wanted to prove to all the NBC suits that he was a media mogul in his own right. And and two, obviously, was his partisan agenda. In your book, Gabe, and in the Showtime series, the September 11th attacks were a seminal moment for Ailes and for Fox. What role did 9-11 play in Fox's movement from a conservative-leaning cable news network in the 1990s to the state TV network it is today? Yeah, you know, and Joe can maybe talk a little bit about this because in the book, I focus on these kind of pivotal turning points and 9-11 was one. And I'll just briefly rewind the focus. The first major one, of course, was the Clinton impeachment in 98. Fox in its first two years was kind of floundering. It didn't have kind of an overarching narrative that they could latch onto. And with the Lewinsky scandal, Ailes had this very vivid story that he could build the entire network around. And so Fox's ratings in the year after the Lewinsky scandal broke, jumped 400%. And so clearly that was the first kind of breakthrough. Uh, then you have the, you know, the Bush-Gore recount fight and Fox became the home team for Republicans who felt that Democrats were trying to undo the election regardless of, of the facts. And then yes, 9-11. 9-11 was so pivotal because Fox not only became a Republican megaphone, Ailes was now working in concert with the Bush White House to really sell the case for war. And Fox's ratings surpassed CNN in January of 02. And this was so important because all of the other cable news networks and, and mainstream outlets, including the New York Times, there was this groundswell of jingoism and patriotism that Ailes was tapping into. And the success of Fox was scaring the rest of the media industry that somehow they were missing the story or missing the audience. And so the success of Fox not only sold the Bush message to Republicans, it had the much larger effect of pulling the entire uh, news industry rightward. And so it wasn't just on Fox that the Bush talking points were getting to viewers and readers. So I think 9-11 was so central in demonstrating the political power of Fox. But I also think personally, and we focus on this a lot in, in the series, it was really this catalyzing moment for Roger Ailes in terms of he had pretty well-established and well-documented paranoia, and 9-11 basically took that and just made it through the roof. He basically became obsessed with his own personal security. He hired a bodyguard. He wired the Fox offices with CCTV cameras. He had a monitor on his desk that he could watch pretty much any location in the building. And then as we, we show in the episode, spoilers aside, this is the time when he buys an upstate compound across the Hudson River from West Point and you know, builds this fortress on top of a mountain and then digs out a bunker underneath the house, which he builds. Uh, as people who've been in it described it to me, it wasn't a panic room. It was a panic house. It was basically a house underneath the house that he could and his wife could live out the apocalypse that they believed was coming. So 9-11, I think, really 
made Ailes from kind of an eccentric, bloviating, bombastic conservative into something, you know, more menacing and nefarious, which was the the sort of conspiracy fear-mongering that we see now mainstreamed in the culture. He was the sort of the first one to start talking about black helicopters and stuff. That is remarkable. I think Joe uh, wanted to jump in with a question, and I just wanted to jump in with a comment briefly before moving on. I think some of the language we use when you're talking about what I will call the Clinton scandal is important to not make it woman-centric and call it the Lewinsky scandal, as I would also say about the same uh, women that were involved in the allegations against Roger Ailes and other individuals at Fox News. But I think Joe wanted to follow up with a question, so... Um, You did bring up the Clinton scandal, and I want to ask you a little bit about the evolution of uh, Fox News. In 1998, 1996 through 1998, there was a conservative bent, but there seemed to be a common set of facts that everyone worked off of. The main players were reporters that had been hired from other television networks and who played it pretty straight. The guy at the White House was a former NPR reporter and a very good journalist, Britt Hume was the Washington bureau chief. Uh, While I knew he had conservative leanings, he generally tried to play it straight. And then over time, it evolved. And, you know, as we said at the top, it's become sort of state TV. How did you witness, as you were trying to put the pieces together, that evolution? Yeah, I think you you hit that nail right there. There was really a slow transformation of Fox over the years. And it had to do with the rising power of ales within the News Corp empire. The better Fox's ratings did, the more profits Fox News made, the more power ales had to to run the network however he wanted. And so over the years, he clashed with the journalists that were at Fox that tried to push back and restrain some of his most extreme impulses. And people that come to mind are, yes, Britt Hume or the then head of news, John Moody, who had been a longtime Time Magazine correspondent, and yes, a very conservative Catholic, but someone who saw himself as a journalist, and as you know, executives who were in the room described it to me, that he would clash with Ailes and push back. And over time, Ailes just basically got tired of any of the resistance and sidelined people that challenged him or promoted them and kicked them upstairs to non-jobs. And so by the end, I really think by Obama's election in, in 2008, was really when Ailes was running Fox, you know, as his own personal megaphone. And just the network's craziness had reached a new level. So uh, in the early years, yeah, I think, Joe, you're totally right. There was some underlying journalistic credibility there. And I think that was just a testament to that people who worked there had experience. And Ailes, over time, just got tired of dealing with them. Ronan Farrow and his reporting on on Harvey Weinstein are rightly given credit for their role in the Me Too movement. But your reporting on O'Reilly, Ailes and Fox back in 2016 made significant contributions as well. Describe the culture you found at Fox, pervasive as it was, and the challenges of getting sources, many of whom were under NDAs. How did you get them to talk to you? Yeah, when I was doing my book, I heard the stories of Ailes and the abuse and just the culture of fear uh, and the wall of silence was so strong that the current Fox employees were going to certainly not go on the record. And even most of them I spoke to about the harassment wanted to be entirely off the record. So the examples I include in my book are women that had worked with Ailes earlier in his career in the 80s 
and earlier, and they were you know very brave for basically coming forward, and that was the first chip in the armor. And in the wake of Gretchen Carlson's lawsuit in the summer of 16, that spurred more women to come forward, first to the, the News Corp internal investigation, and then I was breaking stories about the status of that investigation and getting women inside Fox News to talk. I interviewed a woman named Rudy Bakhtiar, uh, who was a Fox News correspondent in the 2000s, who had gotten a settlement and was the first, I believe, to break her NDA at Fox News. And I just remember the fear in her voice when we were preparing to publish the interview. And she asked me to wait to publish the interview so that she had time to move money out of her bank account to, I guess, her parents or somewhere that she felt was more protected because she was so terrified that the Fox News legal machine was going to sue her for everything she had for breaching the NDA, describing the abuse. So that is um, one of the biggest reporting challenges of, of my career. And I remember on top of that, this was all breaking, remember, during the Republican convention in Cleveland. And so I was on the ground in Cleveland covering Donald Trump's nomination. And just as a freak accident, I had tripped on a curb that I hadn't seen and broke my arm. And so I had one arm in a sling as the ale scandal is going down. And I'm interviewing these women many of whom were in Cleveland, uh, who had worked at Fox over the years or were at Fox. And I, I remember at the end of that week, just flying back to New York and just breaking down in tears. And, and I'm not an emotional person, but I remember on the plane, it was a mix of exhaustion and just the, the emotion of really starting to see the full picture of the scale of Ailes's abuse. And it was the week after that I got the tip that Lori Loon, longtime member of the Fox News Washington Bureau who had uh, been in charge of bookings. And I had heard whispers and rumors about her experience with Ailes, but she was, I tried to reach her earlier and she wouldn't talk. And a friend of hers had finally encouraged her to come forward. And I hopped on a plane the week after Ailes was fired to go to California to interview her. And that article described how Ailes had entrapped her. He had photographed her and videoed her in compromising sexual positions 20 years ago. And he used that to essentially blackmail her into a, a psychological and sexual abusive relationship. And it was like interviewing a cult victim. I remember just being horrified and disgusted and, and my heart was breaking for her hearing what Ailes had done to her. And so that story, I think, established a lot of the template for the future stories that were to come. And the New York Times and Ronan Farrow did a lot of groundbreaking work picking up from where the Fox News scandal left off and starting to take a real serious look at Harvey Weinstein, who, like Ailes, had been the subject of a lot of rumors and open secrets about his history of abuse of women. Right. One other thing I'll, that I thought about at the time was really, this was all breaking at a time that the culture at large was starting to ex re-examine a lot of the things that we had been maybe afraid to look at. And I think the New York Magazine, where I was working at the time, did this powerful, groundbreaking cover of all of the women who had accused Bill Cosby of sexual abuse over the years. And they were photographed sitting in chairs, 20 or I forget how many women, but just the sheer number of them photographed together on the cover of a magazine, I think helped frame the story that these men were serial predators. And so the Ailes sexual harassment scandal was happening at the time that the culture was coming to terms with what these powerful men had done. And so I think this was just a long overdue 
corrective to terrible behavior that had been tolerated for for far too long. Certainly long overdue, and I think still in progress. I was going to say, I think it uh, is remarkable for those women to be able to come forward, but equally remarkable for reporters to be able to get those kinds of stories, not only get them to talk in the first place, but to make them feel safe and secure and and heard and listened to. That's a that's a special kind of talent you, Ronan, Jane Mayer uh, and the like have. I want to talk about what happened once those stories started coming in and the Fox snipers, so to speak, got trained on you. Ailes and Fox had you under surveillance and compiled a rather large dossier on you. When did you first learn about the Gabe Sherman dossier and what was that experience like? It's a bit of a blur, but basically I became aware that Ailes was following me and creating a whole smear campaign against me about a year or so into the reporting of my book. Um, I started to hear from Fox sources that Ailes was becoming obsessed with my reporting and we all know now why he was what he was so scared of, of ultimately coming out. And so during the book, I faced an intense pushback campaign by Fox operatives. Um, Ailes was using company money, basically paying vendors that were fake to pay for off-the-books political smears that he was um, doing against me. And he created these websites that smeared me in overtly kind of anti-Semitic ways. One of them referred to me as like a New York intellectual. And I think the low point for me was when my picture was splashed on the homepage of Breitbart and the headline referred to me as a Soros paid attack dog. My wife and I got a death threat at home. And at the time, we lived in you know a building with no doorman. Um, I just felt very exposed. Ailes was running this giant corporation with he travels with armed security. So I just uh, I filed a report with the NYPD, and this was right before Christmas in uh, in 2012. We uh, threw our stuff in a bag and took you know went to my in-laws' house days earlier than we had planned to just to get out of New York. Um, and I think that was when I, I realized that this had taken on a much bigger life of its own and. I started to question, like, what the hell am I doing? Um, is this worth it? But by that point, you know, I had been so committed to telling the story, and I knew how important Ailes was to understanding what was happening to our politics, that it had the kind of opposite effect. If he had thought that he was going to intimidate me to stop, it just actually made me more determined to keep going. And so that was part of it. And then when Ailes was fired, I, there was a whole new round of sources coming forward to tell me the extent of which he was out to try to destroy my reporting. And I joked to a friend at the time that it was like your Stasi file being opened and getting to see actually what the regime had compiled about you. So that's, um, I think that's when I had learned about the 400 page dossier that he had commissioned and tried to get my bank records and any point of leverage he could find on me. But I live a pretty boring <laughs> conventional life. So uh, I, I pitied those PIs that were forced to just sit outside my house and hope to catch me going to a strip club, but just I, I'd go to Whole Foods or something. So uh, let me shift this away from strip clubs and uh, Whole Foods to the political impact of Fox. You referenced that earlier. We talked about the impact of Fox on our politics also evolved over time and it came much more powerful. You see Barack Obama's election as one of those inflection points. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah, I think the best way or definitely a way to understand Ailes' ideology is it wasn't 
you know, limited government conservatism, Bill Buckley conservatism. It was really a sort of nostalgia for an America that never existed, but it's in America of Roger Ailes's imagination. He was born in 1940 in Northeast Ohio. His dad worked at a union automotive plant for his whole life, retired on a pension. I mean, Roger Ailes went to see, you know, Hellcats at the Navy at the local uh, movie house at his time. I mean, he had this kind of black and white 1950s Leave it to Beaver experience. And Barack Obama's election, in his mind, was this threat to his very idea of what America was. It's everything that we see Donald Trump talking about today. And so that's when Fox News became not just a conservative news outlet or an outlet that was partisan to the Republican Party. It was fighting for this kind of lost America um, for older white people in the heartland that did not like the idea of a a changing demographics. And so I think that was the inflection point. And of course, Donald Trump's election is the apex of that. And in the Showtime series, Loudest Voice, dramatically what the show is building to is Donald Trump's election because Roger Ailes created the political environment and the political space for a figure like Donald Trump to exist. And so uh, I think that's again, why Fox News is so much bigger. You don't need to be a media junkie or even a news junkie to want to understand the impact of Roger Ailes. I mean, we're all living in the reality that he created. Yeah, I think one of the most powerful scenes in the Showtime series was when Ailes went back to uh, his hometown in Ohio. And it really did, I think, paint the portrait that you were just describing of not only 1950s America, but the whole sense of the politics of grievance, of sort of Older white men, if you're looking at it demographically, who believed that somehow the world had passed them by and it was someone's fault. And Ailes tapped into that. But moving beyond, if you look at the evolution and the arc of the Fox story, one might expect that with Ailes gone, things might have gone in the other direction. But in fact, they accelerated without Ailes. Why did that happen? For two reasons. One, the election of Donald Trump really represented a power shift between Fox News and Donald Trump's audience, because historically, Republicans kind of contorted themselves to fitting within the lines that Roger Ailes painted. And what happened with Donald Trump was that he was such an effective communicator, plus he had his own platform with Twitter, and he was hosting his own rallies. He essentially became his own media company. And so what Ailes saw actually with some fear during the Republican primary and the general election was that the Fox viewers were actually becoming Donald Trump viewers, not Fox viewers. And this was best expressed when Megyn Kelly famously had a feud with Trump and asked him about his history with women. And he then started attacking her on Twitter and calling her crazy and said she was bleeding from wherever. And it was this grotesque, misogynistic attack on Fox's biggest star. And what I, when I talked to Fox executives and producers at the time, they said all of the incoming communication they were getting from viewers, emails, tweets, and everything, was actually taking Donald Trump's side. Roger Ailes was essentially powerless to defend Megyn Kelly because the audience was not in her camp. And so that's one thing. And then you have the, of course, firing and then ultimate death of Roger Ailes, which created a massive power vacuum at Fox News. He had been the the programming Svengali, the genius who had come up with all of these, as you mentioned, Joe, uh, grievance storylines. And so with Ailes out of the picture, 
producers had kind of lost their North Star of where do they go towards. And Donald Trump uh, effectively became the head of Fox News. He had personal relationships with all of the big talent. He would call up producers, actual segment producers of the show. And so Donald Trump became the person who was setting the sort of overarching programming agenda for Fox News. And I feel strongly, and I've talked about this with people, that if Ailes was still around, you know, Fox News would clearly be supportive of of the Trump White House, but it would not be so blatantly state TV because Ailes was such a sophisticated communicator that he knew that Fox's power stemmed from at least having some plausible distance from the party and from the administration and being seen as a news network. And the best kind of propaganda is is propaganda that the audience thinks is actual real information. And so um, I think Ailes would have dialed back. He's, he definitely would have reined in Hannity, uh, not let Hannity be essentially the shadow chief of staff. And so I think we're left with a, a, a case today where Ailes created it's a Frankenstein story. You know, he really created this monster that he lost control of. And now it is what it is today, which is part of the PR arm of the White House. So it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, which is what came first, Trump or Fox? But the result is that we no longer have a common set of facts that we debate in this country. You have a stream of information that goes out on Fox. You have a stream of information that goes out on CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, Washington Post, that are completely different narratives. From your perspective, and you also mentioned Twitter, I I think you have to add Twitter into this. What's that done to our politics? It's been devastating. I mean, I think no matter what your partisan or ideological affinities are, it's horrible. You know, our entire political conversation is atomized. We're all sort of sending out blasts of information into the ether. um, And sometimes they're bouncing off of each other, but there's nothing to grab onto. And so basically, it's just raw power politics. The person who either has the largest megaphone or can just through just sheer will convince their team that their information is better or more accurate than the others. I think it's really, it's really bad. I don't know how that we get out of this, this mess. And I think one thing I've thought about to give myself some at least perspective, if not hope, is that this is actually in certain ways a more of a return to the American political conversation. You know, the post-war years where we had the kind of big three news networks that were supposedly objective, that was more of the anomaly than the norm. You know, you go back to the 19th century, you had highly partisan newspapers. You go back even further to the founding fathers and you had the Thomas Paine and the pamphleteers. So I think partisan information and weaponized news has always been kind of part of the American character. I think the difference now is a, the scale. These were local publications, not national ones. And so we now have mass media that is doing that. And then the second thing is the speed. Misinformation is just being pumped into the bloodstream of the news system faster than it can be corrected. And so I don't know how we get out of it. And I think, Joe, you're right. I mean, Trump clearly benefits from this system and maybe he created it or maybe the system was, was there in place to create Donald Trump. But uh, what I'm fascinated in the weeks to come is to see what plays out with impeachment, because it's binary. He's either going to be impeached or he's not, and he's either going to be convicted or not. And so we're going to be able to see the effects of it's sort of this kind of political science experiment to see if our information system can provide essentially 
viewers with the jurors, which is the American people, um, with the information to make the best decision. Yeah, let's talk about impeachment briefly and whether Ailes's uh, theory of the case, as you put it, will ring true. With Shepard Smith gone, is there anyone at Fox who can step in to fill that void? I think Chris Wallace clearly is trying to to play that role. He's been vocally pushing back against the Hannity, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson talking point machine. So I think that's definitely some a little ray of sunlight of reality over there. But I think viewer wise, the primetime shows are the biggest part of the audience. And so the only person I think who really would have the power to break through the cult of Donald Trump would be Sean Hannity. I mean, imagine we all talked about during the Nixon years, the John Dean moment. I mean, the real John Dean moment in in American culture today would be Sean Hannity going on air and saying Donald Trump committed crimes and needs to to go. But I just don't see that ever happening. It's probably a a fever dream of um, the left. So, yeah. Yeah, Gabe, I'm interested in your perspective on the primetime programming. It's become openly racist, white nationalist. The talking points that David Duke uses are the same talking points that Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson use. From your perspective, why do you think brands choose to associate with that? Wouldn't that be toxic? And wouldn't that have an impact on forcing Fox closer back to the mainstream? So some advertisers have pulled back. Tucker Carlson has seen an exodus of advertisers after some of his most noxious comments. Same with Laura Ingram. So yes, you're right. Companies don't want to be associated with white nationalism. But I think the larger point is that the Fox News business model depends mainly on cable companies paying Fox News to carry Fox News on their systems. So it's a subscriber model. I mean, more than half of their revenue is from cable news subscriptions. And so it actually has the counter effect. The more ideological and extreme Fox News becomes, the more loyal their audience is, therefore the more valuable that audience is to tuning into cable systems. It's working against what should be the corrective where that kind of extreme language would be punished. And so I think the result is that the pressure points of advertising leaving Fox News is not as strong because they're relying on carriage fees in the industry, the subscription revenue that cable companies like Comcast and Spectrum and Verizon, they all pay to carry Fox News. So, Gabe, I want to wrap up, and we have really appreciate you being so generous with your time. I think a lot of us, at least in my social circle, you know, as progressives, have one or two people either in their family or in their social circle that are Trumpers. Do you have anybody and how do you deal with them, given that you're the resident Foxologist who has exposed what Fox News is really about? Yeah, something comes to mind about that. My wife's grandmother and grandfather out on the West in Oregon are diehard Fox News viewers. And they're lovely, sweet people. And I've spent time with them. And I remember when I was doing the book, I was telling them about things I was uncovering about Ailes and their social conservatives. And so I would think that all of that abuse would not appeal to their sensibilities. And I was like, you know, this is not real news. They're, they're tailoring the news to fit your, they're kind of manipulating you. And it was like a cult because 
Uh, I remember my wife's grandmother says, well, I'm forever with Fox. It had become such a part of their identity that there was nothing I could really say that would get them to change the channel. And so my solution with those sorts of people are just to, I, you know, I don't even really engage and debate the, the topic because it, it's counterproductive. You're not going to break through. So I just end up avoiding talking about it. So I think that's the reality of the Trump base, right? I mean, the 30%, his approval ratings move in this band between you know 30 and 40%. And I think those are the people that he famously said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they'd still stick with him. I mean, they're gone. I mean, they're like an island out to sea. Let them just sail away because we can't, I don't think any, any kind of persuasion is going to get through to them. I think Joe was baiting me into an OK Boomer comment with that question <laughs> and the, the response, but we'll, we'll leave it be. Um, Gabe, we are so grateful for you spending your time with us today. And uh, thank you for all of your insights. We'll look forward to hearing what you have to say after the public impeachment hearings begin next week. We'll see what happens and how Fox covers it. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thank you, Gabe. All right, Joe. So last week we saw the public release of the deposition transcripts of several witnesses in the House impeachment inquiry. And we also saw one witness, Ambassador Gordon Sondland, revise his testimony as witnesses are allowed to and sometimes do. Sondland now says he did tell Ukraine officials that military aid was linked to their public commitment to begin the investigation sought by President Donald Trump. How important a development is Sondland's revised testimony? And I'll put in the caveat that if I'm putting a witness in front of a jury and he changes his testimony, it's pretty much a sunk cost at that point. This is a political trial, not a a, a legal trial. So, So I think it is actually quite significant for two reasons. One is one of the Republican talking points was how could you have extortion if the Ukraine government didn't know the aid was being withheld and for what reason it was being withheld. Well, Sondland blows that up. He basically, in four pages of revised deposition, blows up half the Republicans' case or the president's defender's case. He then, by definition, blows up the other half of it, which is, well, all the other people didn't talk directly to the president about this. Well, Sondland did. He took his direction from the president. So to think that somehow in his conversations with the president about an extortion attempt that he knew about that this didn't come up is just implausible. So for that reason, it is very important. I expect the Republicans to be all over him. Uh, It's ironic since he's a big Republican donor. But I think somewhere along the line, he got the message that hey, you don't lie to Congress. You got to tell the truth to Congress or you go to jail. And as much as he supports Donald Trump, he was not doing time for Donald Trump. You think that's why he changed his story? Of course. I think when he and his legal team saw the depositions of others, I don't believe that it jogged his memory. It jogged his conscience and (laughs) uh, or jogged his sense of freedom because if he didn't go in and change his story, there would have been a referral for perjury to the Justice Department. And even if Bill Barr decided to sit on it, he's not going to be there forever. Right. One of the things that came out of these hundreds of pages of testimony that were released last week was that there didn't seem to be more than one or two sentences that were positive for President Trump's case, at least so far. Where does that leave Republicans on Capitol Hill as far as defending the president? 
Well, one of the really striking things about reading the depositions is the Republicans were out storming the skiff, screaming about how unfair it was and how there was no chance to cross-examine. Well, the Republicans were in the room, and they didn't ask a single substantive question. They they were afraid to ask these questions because they they didn't know the answer and they didn't want to make it any worse. So all of that screaming was theatrics. They are not defending the president on the substance of what he did. There is no defense of the president. The president has admitted it. It's in the rough transcript of the call. And what the depositions do is it gives all of the surrounding information of what led up to the call. The call now is irrelevant, really. The evidence is all in all of the work that was done. And remember, we only know a piece of what happened. The president is stonewalling and is not allowing his senior aides to testify, and he's not allowing access to documents. That's where the smoking gun is. You would see that Mulvaney directed OMB to hold the money and likely told them why. And Mulvaney's on the record as saying there was a quid pro quo. And to get over it. And to get over it. And more importantly, that everything he did was at the direction of the president. Rudy Giuliani has said everything he did was for his client, the president. So this idea that there's no linkage here is absurd. This is the president's policy that he has to live with. My guess is, getting back to the question, the Republicans will ultimately argue that, yes, the president did this. It was bad judgment on the part of the president to do it the way he did it, but it's not impeachable. And until the public pressure becomes overwhelming, they will stay there. Another development out of last week was President Trump and his supporters, like Senator Rand Paul, called on news organizations to print the name of the whistleblower. In fact, the president's eldest son, Donald Trump Jr., tweeted the name of someone who may or may not be involved. So, Joe, both from a political as well as a communication standpoint, what do you make of the Trump-Rand Paul effort to focus attention on the whistleblower? Well, both political and communications, their defense is that this is some sort of deep state coup. And what they want to do is they want to take each of these players and discredit them. So they're trying to discredit the lawyer for the whistleblower for something he tweeted a few years ago. They want to out and discredit the whistleblower for whatever affiliation they may have had with someone who they hate. And that's a important tactic and one of the few tactics that they have left. I I don't think it's going to work because the people you are going to see testify publicly this week into next week, these aren't political people. One's a lieutenant colonel in the Army. One's a 50-year veteran of the Vietnam War and career foreign service. These are not people who have a partisan agenda. They have an American agenda. And I think they're going to look foolish if they try to discredit those people. And they're at the heart of this. They were in the room when this happened. They were on the call. They were in the negotiations, whether it be in Kiev or in Washington, D.C. So I think it has limited value. It has a a bit of psychic value going back to talking to Gabe. Fox needs something to cling on to because their narrative is this is a reflection of how awful the Democrats are, not 
a reflection of Donald Trump because he's our dear leader. His press secretary called, you know, when she was talking about John Kelly, that he wasn't equipped to deal with the genius of our great president. This is sort of Germany and North Korea propaganda sort of put in together. But I think in the end, it will keep the Fox News viewers happy that I think Gabe did a nice job of explaining how and why. But it's not going to it's not going to wash, I think, with most Americans. Finally, a little news that wasn't directly related to impeachment, but may have an impact on the process. In state and local elections in Virginia and Kentucky last week, Democrats exceeded expectations and took total control of the legislative and executive branches in Virginia and picked up the governor's mansion in Kentucky, something that seemed impossible just even a couple of weeks ago. So how do these Democratic victories impact 2020 elections and the politics of impeachment? Well, I think the 2020 election is pretty clear, which is the Democrats' path to victory you can see in the state of Virginia, you can see in parts of Pennsylvania, you can see in Kentucky. Not that the Democrats will win Kentucky as a state, but Democrats are by and large an urban party. That's where their strength is. Their strength has been moving out into the suburbs and the exurbs, and that's why uh, the Democrat won in, in Kentucky That's why the Democrats took control of the House of Delegates and the state Senate in Virginia. And the local races in uh, suburban Pennsylvania were overwhelmingly uh, for Democrats. So I think there's a strong message there that there is a path to victory for the Democrats. One. Two, that while Donald Trump energizes his base, there's a lot of evidence now that he does more to energize his opponent's base. Brashear won on turnout. I think uh, I don't. I won't get these numbers correct, but I think they're in the neighborhood. That Bevin got thirty thousand more votes in the Louisville area than he did last time, and Brashear got eighty or ninety thousand more votes. I mean, the the turnout was off the charts compared to the last governor's election there. As far as impeachment, I'm not sure it's going to have much of an impact at all. The challenge Republicans face hasn't changed. While they are exceedingly worried about having lost suburbs, exceedingly worried about having lost women, exceedingly worried about losing young people, if they break with Donald Trump, they lose. They lose their core supporters. Those other groups, if they can just hold on to enough of them to put a coalition to get them to 48, 49 percent, and more importantly, an electoral college win, they'll be fine. I think the statewide races of Republicans who are up in the Senate reflect the same dynamic as the the presidential. So there's just no rational political formula or judgment that right now that says we need to break with Trump. Maybe the hearings change that. Maybe there's something else that comes out that changes that. But it's very, very hard to see right now. As far as the strategy goes, the cake is already battered and baked, so to speak. As cake metaphors goes, that is on point. Uh, My grandmother would appreciate that one. All right, Joe. Well, it's always good to have your thoughts on this. Thank you. Until next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.